All right. 2020. I don't know about you, but does, does that sound like science fiction or something to you? Do you, I mean, you just remember, when there was that song in the year 25, 25. Just, it's like I remember thinking that was just so far out. We'd never get there. <laughs> What's, wait a that? All right, 25, 25. I don't think he's saying 2020. That just doesn't, you know, have the right rhythm to it. But, <sighs> but at any rate, yeah, it's just bizarre to think that we're heading into 2020. And, um, you know, 2020 is going to be an interesting year, don't you think? It's probably going to be pretty contentious. Um, it's going to ramp up the divisiveness in this country. This election cycle is just going to be... Uh, a circus, I would imagine, the way it's shaping up right now. It's going to be an interesting year in the sense of the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times, right? So uh, how do we prepare for such a year? I mean, every year is difficult, right? But uh, sometimes we take a look at a year and say, hey, this, is, this thing is uh, shaping up to be uh, very interesting. So the question is, how do we prepare for such a year? How do we direct ourselves through this year? And as we stand on the cusp of it, three days away, two days away, whatever it is right now, what is it that we can do to give us a sense of hope? I mean, part of what's driving a lot of the angst in our country, and, and I suppose worldwide, is that we're the first generation, at least in America, where it looks like our children may not have as high a standard of living as we did. And and so it's just like the inversion of the American dream. There's a lot of fear associated with where we're headed and the things that are happening. How do we have the hope? How do we have the blessed assurance that everything is going to be okay? And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about this morning. Now, you can usually count on me, even if I'm talking about a message of hope, to start somewhere way out in left field and then come back around. And I'm not going to disappoint you today. I'm going, to, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to start from probably what's going to be an unlikely uh, place. But uh, if you stick with me, there's going to be hope at the end, I hope. I hope. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, um, I was just about headed, just you know, steps away from going into the property manager's office. I needed to talk to them. And my phone went off, and I took a look down. And it was one of those unknown numbers, right? Uh, it had the number, and it said Phoenix, Arizona. So I'm kind of trained not to pick those up these days, you know, because of all this, the uh, spam and things that are, that are coming through on your cell phone. And I looked at it, Phoenix. Who do I know in Phoenix? Why would it be Phoenix? And I looked at the door, and I looked at the phone, and something just told me to push the button. So I pushed the button. Hi, this is Dave. And then the voice hesitated for a minute and said, is this Pastor Dave? And I said, yeah, this is Pastor Dave. He said, wow, you actually answered the phone. <laughs> I always find it interesting when people are amazed that I would answer the phone. If they only knew, right? They don't have people for that. Um, and, and so, yes, this is Pastor Dave, and um, he introduced himself. He said that he was Brady Wilson and that he was a psychologist from Phoenix. And I have to tell you, he's the Ph.D., but he treated me with such respect, you know, the whole time through. And it said a lot about who he was, even before we really got into the specifics. But he said, I'm a psychologist, and we have a mutual friend, and there's a couple in, in Scottsdale who... Uh, 
found us online about eight years ago, and we have been fast pen pals ever since. Then they stream us uh, on Sunday mornings and whatnot. And uh, Brady said that he and his wife couldn't find a church that they really liked in their area. And they heard about us through their friend, our friend, my friend, and, uh, and have been streaming us ever since. In fact, he told me that they like to stream us in, on Sunday morning in bed with their cup of coffee and their toast. Actually, he didn't say toast. I made that up, but it kind of completes the picture. You know, I remember uh, Johnny Carson making a joke about how everybody watched him over their toes in bed at night. And so I'm kind of imagining Brady and his wife, Beth, watching us over their toes. So Brady and Beth, if you're watching, welcome. This is your story. I did get permission (laughs) from Brady to tell this story, by the way. When we finally got around to why he called, he said that he had had what he called a death experience. And I said, near-death experience? And he corrected me, no, it was a death experience. I coded twice, and they had to revive me. And the experience was so intense. He said, I needed to write it down. And so I've written a manuscript, and I'm wondering if you would read it. And I said, well, of course I'll read it. You know, And, uh, and so we talked a little bit more, and he agreed to send the manuscript. And after I read it, and I emailed him back, and we have had a conversation since then, and kind of a a deepening of the relationship and and the friendship. But this experience was so intense that I wanted to read you just a part of it this morning. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with near-death experiences. I think most of us are, are pretty familiar with them at some level. And I need to apologize to Brady right now. I edited the excerpt a little bit for time and to fit the screen. Isn't that what they always say, for time and, and screen? And uh, and also paraphrased a few things just for clarity. So sorry, Brady. I uh, hope I, I didn't mess up your song. But this story picks up. What had happened to Brady was that he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a very aggressive cancer. And he ended up with a tumor uh, attached to the tubing around his kidney that was five pounds. It was the size of a grapefruit, and it was pushing all the other organs aside. And after chemo and after radiation and after surgery, it looked like he was doing fine. They had gotten it, and it was, it was okay. But just as he was about to be discharged, something happened, and he was bleeding out. What happened was is that one of the arteries, pelvic arteries, was pushed Um, so hard for so long by the tumor that it weakened. And when full blood pressure flowed back into it, it developed an aneurysm, and the aneurysm burst. And he was literally bleeding out inside. And so this story picks up right where he's being wheeled into ICU. So if you want to just sit back for a second, it's, it's three pages. But, you know, a lot of you like to close your eyes during the story. But just listen to the intensity of what's going on here. Two very athletic young men came to rush me to ICU. I remember their kind voices, the voices of confident young men encouraging me that I would be okay. They ran me through the halls, hesitating only to wait for the elevator door. The pain caused nausea. I had thrown up earlier, and when the nausea came again, one of the young men very gently turned my head while running down the hallway so that I wouldn't aspirate. I got into ICU, and they moved me onto another table. My eyes were closed. The lights were bright, and all I could see with my eyes closed was the red color of the lights. The ICU doctor was by my head and to my left as I lay on the table. He was like a ship's captain shouting out orders. Also on my left was someone, I think he was a male nurse, who was taking my blood pressure and reading it out loud. There were six teams of two, so there were 12 people around me trying to get IVs into me. 
And there was a female nurse on my right side by my head who asked me what seemed like were irrelevant questions. Where I was from, what was the name of the doctor who had placed the port, what my, what was my wife there with me, did I have any children? At the time, I didn't know why she kept asking me these questions. But now it seems like she was trying to keep me there and keep me engaged. I bled out so much that my veins had collapsed. The teams around me couldn't place IVs in order to get blood into me. A surgeon came in and told me that they couldn't get blood into me, so they had to cut me down, quote-unquote, in order to get access to the femoral artery. They couldn't use any kind of anesthesia because my blood pressure was plummeting. Small incisions had to be made on either side of the groin to access veins. I could hear the nurse shouting out my blood pressure, which was rapidly decreasing, going down, down, down. And then the nurse started talking about having a hard time getting a pulse. Everyone in the room was in control, especially the captain who was shouting orders. I had so much confidence in him. Then as I lay there, I felt the presence of someone walking around me. I didn't know who it was, but I knew someone was walking around me. And then I felt a touch on my knee, then my elbow, then my shoulder, my forehead, and again on the other side of me, my knee, my elbow, my shoulder. And I heard a female voice say, It's going to be all right, sweetheart. It was a beautiful voice, a loving voice, a voice so certain that I immediately trusted it. I gave myself to it. Immediately I felt calm. I just felt calm that she was there. She walked around the bed, which was built into the wall, so no one could have walked around it. There were 12 people around and almost on top of me. There was no room for anyone to get in and touch me. But she was there, and I felt calm. Though there was a commanding voice from the ICU physician and the discipline of trained hands all around, there was a frenzied urgency that I sensed for everyone around me. Yet, I was calm. And then everything went black. The lights went away. I could still hear voices. I could hear the nurse saying she couldn't get a pulse. I could hear orders continuing to be made. Everything was black, and it occurred to me that I could be dying. Then I couldn't hear anything at all. I knew immediately, immediately, that I was dying, and I was at peace. Dead. That really doesn't describe what I was. True, my blood pressure went to zero. There was no pulse. I wasn't breathing. My heart had stopped. My medical record states that I had to be revived twice. But I still existed. The I that I am existed. This experience is the most difficult of all my experiences to express in writing. Just as Emerson wrote, my words do not carry its august sense. They fall short and cold. But I will try to tell you what my experience was like, for this is the whole point of the story. This may be the entire reason that I'm here. In researching the experiences of other people who have had near-death experiences, who have coded, died, and then been revived, several things are common. One of those things is that our words do not capture the experience in any true way. Every person faces frustration and a feeling of incompleteness in attempting to communicate such an experience to others in words. I won't say that I was surprised by what follows. It would require emotion to be surprised. But emotion wasn't part of my experience. Still, 
everything fell into place as one unexpected occurrence after another. There is no membrane that separates us from God. A wise old proverb says, God comes to see us without bells. And it was from this experience that I feel I came to truly understand the I-thou relationship of which Martin Buber wrote so brilliantly. The thing that we are, the thing that we are, sees the world as a series of things. The thing that we are sees ourselves as a thing. We call ourselves by our roles, husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, our profession, our race, our religion, our politic. All these things define us and others as the things that we believe that we and they are. But the soul that we are, the I, is absent ego. It is the I that exists in the presence and as a direct result of the thou. I am referring to the I as the sacred soul, which Emerson describes as the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty, to which every part and every particle is equally related, the eternal one. And I am referring to the thou as God. There is no separation. There is a fidelity between the creator and the created. The object and the subject are one. As for my certainty of it, Emerson may have said it best. How do you know it is the truth and not an error of your own? We know the truth when we see it from opinion, as we know when we are awake that we are awake. You just know. So what I'm about to write, I write because I know. And like others who have had such an experience, research shows that we came to know whatever it is we were made to know without words. Without words, we were just made to know. And the first thing that I was made to know was that all was well with my soul. Again, if human emotions were part of my experience, this would have been surprising. But I wasn't surprised. I was humbled. But please don't take humbled to mean an emotion or an emotional state like being shamed or degraded. Rather, it was the independence of being freed from the restrictions and delusions of the ego. I was stripped of all pretentiousness so that I existed there just as did the thou, God. I'll repeat that. I existed there just as did God. There was no separation. Just as God is the I am, so was I at that moment, stripped of every other thing. I experienced grace. I experienced forgiveness. I experienced being embraced. I was redeemed. I was drawn into direct experience with God. There was no separation between God and me. And not only was I acutely aware of the relationship between me and God, I was the relationship. I knew that God knew all there was to know about me. It was a kind of review of my life, all of it. It seemed a kind of judgment, but there was no conclusion, no discernment, no opinion, no assessment, no good or bad, no right or wrong. There was only the history of my life here on earth, the facts, the elements, the pieces of my life being dragged out into the light. It was a picture of the thing that I was, but it was secondary at best. 
What was of utmost importance was the soul that I am. The sacred relation to God that had resided in me just before leaving the inanimate body that was resting in the ICU. And now, that soul resided not just with God, but shared a relationship with God. I and thou, indistinguishable from one another. And the darkness around me was not foreboding. I had no dread of it. Rather, it was restful, peaceful. I experienced a sense of peace that I cannot articulate. There was an atmosphere of peace and love that was so pervasive that I could not distinguish myself from it. It was the peace that passes all understanding. I was there, but there was no self-awareness. I had no sense of myself apart from all that I was experiencing at the moment. I have said to my family and others that my experience was as if in a holding place, like getting to the symphony late and having to wait outside where you can only hear a hint of the music. I was not yet fully at my destination. As indescribable as the peace and love I experienced was, I knew that it was so much richer if I had moved on. But I didn't. It was here that I was made to know that I could return. Being of no ego at this point, there was a moment, an instant of reorienting to the person that I was, that I am. Immediately I knew of my wife, Beth, the kids, family, friends, my work, and all that there was to do here. I knew it was for me to return. I was made to know that I was being asked if I was willing to go back. Willing is not the right word, because in the absence of ego, there is no will. No willing. It was more like I was being asked if I would submit to going back. I was made to know that if I would submit, if I would allow it, I just had to say it. Yes. I said yes. And then I prayed, Dear God, if it is your will, yes, I will go back. Immediately the lights came back on. I was back in ICU. I heard the nurse say, I've got a pulse. Wow. The beautiful thing about this is you can tell it was written by a psychologist, can't you? The way that he processed it, the way that he tries to express it, and and we'll talk about that in a second. But before that, full disclosure, I haven't been one who's been particularly interested in near-death experiences, you know? I, I, I don't and haven't known what the value would be to those of us who are listening to such stories, being more focused on here and now and, and our choices and our relationships of the moment. So I haven't read a lot. I haven't researched a lot about near-death experiences. But I have read enough to know that neuroscientists often dismiss them as being the subjective reaction as the the body sensory connections break down and and disintegrate. Um, It's the brain's reaction, they sometimes say, to the connections being broken down and not necessarily... So it's subjective. It's what's happening in the brain and the person is interpreting that process. And as I've listened to the stories of people that have come back from the dead... 
they typically express their experience in religious iconography. And so it's either religious terms or the things that they see in terms of, of Jesus and, and dead relatives and other biblical figures or heaven and hell is all mirrored in the culture where they have learned these images. And so the, I, the problem for me was how do you separate this subjective intellectual knowledge, this understanding from the experience itself? I remember, um, do you remember the, uh, the book? I read the book and then saw the movie, uh, Heaven is for Real. And then one about the four-year-old boy. He was a, a pastor's kid, and he coded on the table, and they brought him back. And when he came back, he was telling this full story of God, having gone to heaven, and he explained what it looked like and described it in detail. Um, he got to ride a rainbow-colored horse, I think, and he saw uh, Jesus and the Virgin Mary. He sat on Jesus' lap. He saw John the Baptist and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, this is all stuff that obviously he's been steeped in, even though he's only four, because his father is a pastor. His father is a preacher. Yeah. And so it's easy to, to start to go down to the dismissal lane. But this doesn't mean that his experience wasn't real. It means that he was processing it, maybe, I'm thinking, through these images that he would understand. So we, as listener, can't say, well, that's exactly what heaven looks like, because he even described what Jesus looked like. That was his interpretation of it. On the other hand, he also had information. He said what his father was doing at the moment his father was told that his son had died, he was shouting at God and, and you know, screaming in his despair and anguish. And the boy related that incident and couldn't have known any other way. He talked about meeting his sister in heaven, who was a, a miscarriage uh, from his mother that happened a year before his birth. And he recognized a great-grandfather in a picture. So there were things that he knew that he couldn't have known that also is kind of balancing the scales and muddying the waters and what the heck do we do with this story? You know. But at the same time, whether it's true or not, real or not, in terms of the way that it was described... The question for us is, how do we separate? What is the value to us as we look at these stories, as we listen to these stories? How can they really help us? See, I know people who take them very literally. And this reinforces their religious faith, for better or worse, because there's also stories of people being dragged down to hell and being clawed at by demon claws and whatnot. And so that's terrifying. I do know this. If there is any near-death story that creates fear, residual fear, either in the one who experienced it or the people to whom it is told, then that is not helpful. But if it creates hope, well, man, you can't argue with success, right? But it remains to be seen. What do we do with this? What of the experience itself? Is it real, quote-unquote? And by that I mean it's not just in a subjective interpretation of the brain's functioning, but holds some objective glimpse of what may come. And that would apply to us all. Now, first off, if we're going to go down this road, we have to realize that we can't prove anything beyond the physical. We can't prove it scientifically. We can't prove it empirically. We can't prove it 
or even describe it in our language. Spiritual mysteries are always going to be matters of faith. The Hebrews said it best. They said, we as human beings live between heaven and earth, right? We can't know about heaven. All we can know about is earth. Our job is to bring heaven to earth, bring the unity and connection of of heaven to earth, and bring the individual form and diversity to heaven to merge the two. But we do it on the physical plane. That's what we can know about. That's why we stay focused on the here and now. Don't speculate about the afterlife. The Jews don't have any doctrine about the afterlife for that very reason. It's God's domain. God takes care of it. We don't need to know. We're not read in at this point, right? But what about these? What, ha- what can we do to prove to ourselves experientially what is going on? Because even though we can't prove it to somebody else logically, we can prove such things to ourselves experientially. Now, Brady uses interesting words. He says that he was made to know things, but without words. He can't explain them. He can't describe them. He just knows. And for any of you who have been around me for very long, this is probably calling to mind Emery Tang. You know, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of because it's that conviction, experiential conviction, that really makes the change in life. Once that conviction is deep enough that we actually act on it, that we actually live on it, then we can say that we're people of faith. But not before. It's the action on our conviction that makes all the difference. Now, what impressed me about Brady's experience and the way that he articulated it, remember now, think about it. It's the complete absence of any religious iconography. Now, he was raised in a Christian home. His wife, I think, if I remember correctly, is a PK, a preacher's kid. So they're both steeped in religious iconography, but he doesn't use any of it, or he didn't experience any of it at the time in his story. That, to me, is really interesting. He was trying to be as objective as possible, or he experienced it objectively, without any coloring from his family of origin, from his culture, even the quotes that he uses, and he uses a lot of quotes. I cut several of them. But all the, the, uh, the uh, philosophers and poets that he's quoting, they're, they're mystical poets and philosophers, but they're not religious. And they don't describe a right in religious terms. And I found all of this fascinating because even that absence of religious terminology and imagery, still his story couldn't be more connected to the religious experience. That connection couldn't be any clearer. He's often using almost the exact words or the exact kind of phrasing and language that all of the mystics of the Christian tradition for two millennia have used. He's restating what they've said in so many ways in this Christian tradition. How they've tried, again, unsuccessfully, to describe their experiences in connecting with God. Think about it. All through the Judeo-Christian tradition, from the Hebrew prophets to Jesus to the apostles to the early church fathers, the desert fathers and mothers, on to the medieval mystics, Hildegard of Bingen, Francis of Assisi, Julian of Norwich, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and then into modern times with 
Thomas Burton and Teilhard de Chardin. All of these, and I'm just pulling a few out of the hundreds, tell so much the same story in almost the same way. What do they say? First of all, that they can't express such things in words. It's not possible. Brady died twice. And this experience, in his words, was that he was stripped of everything. His experience was as complete darkness. John of the Cross calls this the dark ray of faith. He says when your faith gets purer and purer, it gets so pure that it becomes invisible and it becomes literally a dark ray. We like to think of our faith as a bright, shining illumination, but he experienced it as a dark ray. Brady experienced it as complete darkness. But within that darkness, completely merged with God's presence, there was no fear involved. Right? Complete peace. That peace that passes all understanding, as Paul tried to place it. He can't express things in words. He can't even be communicated to in words as he was having the experience. He was made to know things, but not in words. Take a look at 2 Corinthians and see how Paul describes the same thing, starting in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and he's talking about himself here in the third person, all right? Trying to be a little bit coy. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body... I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears in me. His experience to heaven, was it a near-death experience? Who knows? Just a, a vision of some sort? Paul was deeply a mystic. We don't see that in him because we're so focused on all his orders about church hierarchy and organization and, and infrastructure But he was hugely a mystic. Look how he expresses. He can't talk about it. It was communicated to him inexpressibly, inexpressibly, expressibly, and he was not permitted to speak it, which really means that he couldn't. There was no way to speak these things. What Brady is saying is mirrored here in what Paul is trying to say. Paul can't express it either. It can't be expressed in words. Now, What Paul does know and what Brady does know is that all is well with my soul is the way that Brady puts it. Now listen to Julian of Norwich. Initially, she was worried about sin. She was worried about sin in her life. She was worried about the sin in the state of the world. And she had a vision at a near-death experience of her own. She was deathly ill. She was on the point of death. And she had this vision. And in this vision, still worried about sin, She writes, But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needful to me, answered by this word and said, Sin is behovely, useful, and necessary. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. 
All this was shown in a touch. Right? Not a word. It was shown in a touch and quickly passed over into comfort. For our good Lord would not have the soul afraid. I could see no sin. For I believe it has no manner of substance nor no actual being. Nor could it be known at all but by the pain it causes. And thus pain, it is something. For it purges us and makes us know ourselves and to ask for mercy. And for the tender love that our good Lord has to all that shall be saved. He comforts readily and sweetly, signifying thus, It is truth that sin is the cause of this pain. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. This is the universal experience of the contemplatives and the mystics. That sense of wellness. Everything will be well. Even in the dark ray of faith, even in the darkness, even in the circumstances that have not changed. Brady says, with all his ego stripped away, with everything gone, and just that pure presence and connection, he knew that he was completely merged with God. The way he described it was he was the relationship, not just in a relationship. He was the relationship. God was the relationship. It's deeper than that. It's more primal. It's more immediate than subject-object. It's everything is right here. There's no separation with God at all. He stressed that over and over. And listen to Paul and Jesus trying to express the same thing. Romans 8, starting in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you wish sometimes Paul would just say what he means? Could he make that any stronger? Jesus, at John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father inviting in me does his works. This is Jesus trying to get across this relationship, that they are the relationship. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to look any further. There is no daylight between us. Everything I do, I can't even say I do it on my own initiative. It doesn't originate in me. It originates in the Father and goes through me because our wills are completely intertwined. They are one. There is no separation, no sense of any sort of division. We are completely one. And then at John 17, he turns it to us, starting at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, us, the people around him, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Do you see the difficulty that Jesus, Paul, Brady, and every other contemplative and mystic has in trying to articulate such messages, such experiences? The words fail. We keep trying, but the words fail. 
And this is why sometimes it seems redundant. This times it's, it sometimes seems overstated. But what can you do? We're trying to get something across that can't be transferred. And yet, we have to speak of it somehow. Until you have the experience yourself, and then suddenly what everyone is saying starts to make perfect sense. It jumps into a new register. It takes on new color. Brady says, yet for all the peace and all the oneness that he was feeling, he knew that he was still in a quote-unquote holding place. And then he gives us that wonderful image. I love this image of getting to the symphony late and you have to stand outside the door, but you can hear the music inside, but you can't see and you can't get the fullness of it. Such a great image, perfect image. He's in a holding place. As good as this is, still, there's something else. Paul tries to get across the same idea in 1 Corinthians 13. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Trying to get that holding room idea across. Brady died to experience this complete stripping away of everything that was himself. Everything that obscured the truth. But contemplatives and mystics, they intentionally and consciously practice this stripping away. Day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, practicing the stripping away. Everything that we've talked about in terms of of contemplative prayer, of meditation, the way that we practice it, is about that stepping aside from that egoic mind, stepping aside and, and, and stripping away everything. The way Jesus calls it is selling everything. Everything that you have, everything that you own, sell that. Give it to the poor and come follow me. But it's the same thing. Metaphorically, what he's talking about, are you willing to let go of all the things that you think you are and think you know to strip it off and have nothing obscuring the truth from you anymore? Is that possible? Can you do that? The contemplatives and the mystics consciously practice this until they see the truth as well. They didn't have to die to get to the same place that Brady got. Although the experience is much like dying, in the solitude, in the silence, in the stillness, to step away from everything that is, to get to that same state of just knowing that you are the relationship, of being merged in such a way that there is no difference between I and thou, you and God, no subject or object, to get to that place. They know the truth as well through experience, and though that experience can never be expressed or can be transferred, there are common elements, at least three common elements that we can see in every one of these. That we have an identity that is deeper than anything that we can think, say, feel, or see. There is an I there. As soon as we think it, it's not the right one anymore. As soon as we say it, it's not the real self. There is an I that's deeper than all of that. 
that can only be experienced when everything else is stripped away. And this deepest self is completely connected to God and everything that God has created in such a way as to be the thing itself. Everything is one thing if you go deep enough as we go into this deeper self. And lastly, because of this, there is nothing to fear. Ever. All is well. It always was, and it always will be. The sense of things not being well is the fear that is obscuring and blocking us from the connection that is who we really are. Grady's experience lines right up with Scripture and the experience of millennia of mystics. It lines up with the experience of contemplatives, yours, mine, our contemplative experiences as far as we've taken them. And it's the commonality of this experience that gives weight and trust in the direction that Brady is taking us in his experience and the experience of all these others. So as we head into this difficult year, and like we said, every year is difficult. But can we experience in our own silence, in our own solitude, in our prayer lives, if we don't have that time, can we make a New Year's resolution that doesn't end on Wednesday the 4th, right? That we're going to start introducing that into our lives, that we're going to keep showing up to whatever kind of prayer time that we can muster. Are we going to practice that silence and solitude throughout the day in mindfulness, in taking the show on the road, taking this awareness, this deep sense of who we are into every moment, into every relationship? Can we find a way in the political tension, in all of the societal divisiveness over all of these issues that we face right now that is separating us one from another, online, in families, and everywhere we go, it seems like. Can we move into this deeper identity and see the commonality between us and even those that we feel that we must oppose for whatever reason, policy-wise or whatever, can we still see the commonality that gives us the sense that everything is well and all manner of thing will be well? Who is it that we really rely on? Is it really just the U.S. government? Is it really the electoral process? Is it really the causes that we enter into? Or is it God within that deep sense of connection? Because when we go there, we will be the best at whatever we do. Whatever we choose, wherever we put our efforts, we will be the best because we will still be connected. We will still be respectful. We will still have relationship, even if we choose to disagree. To disagree. That's it. This blessed assurance that seems so ephemeral, so difficult for us to find, is as simple as all of that but it's difficult at the same time. Brady wrote a little epilogue at the end. I'm going to read a paragraph of this. He says, I haven't been able to live up to all of this. (laughs) 
you have a mountaintop experience like that, how in the world are you going to live up to it day after day and month after month, right? I haven't been able to live up to this, the death experience, the experience of God. But the remnant of the experience guides, directs, and comforts me every hour, day, month, and year. The remnants of the experience, even though it has faded somewhat, it's not as intense as it was. This remnant is still there, still guiding. And what is clear to me is that I have changed through and through in so many ways. And I love this. He says, I am accompanied. I am accompanied. I experience conscience not as an internalized set of do's and don'ts, not as a set of rights and wrongs. Rather, I am accompanied at all times. And I know that there is no moment when God is not available for direction. And I know that to live most fully is to submit to the direction that is always there. Of course I fail. That is what I mean about not living up to the experience. But I know that I've failed when I do. That is a blessing. As a clinical psychologist, I recognize that every soul that enters my office for help is perfect in every way. My work is with the mind that torments the person who is there searching with me. It is the activity of the egoic mind that drives us, plagues us, misguides us. It does this because it wants to be something of itself. It functions in such a way as to put us in a kind of sleep state. We think we are awake, but we are actually asleep and dreaming that we are awake. We are not conscious unless or until we hear the soul's calling. I came away from this experience with a profound sense that we are here to help one another. Other translations, love one another. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Be kind to each other. And recognize the soul in every being. This awareness of connection is our hope. This awareness of connection is our blessed assurance. It is who we really are. We are not this divided people. Who we really are is one and connected with God and with each other. And it is our blessed assurance that all is well. And all manner of thing is well. No matter how noisy or how contentious the world gets. Lean in there. Lean there. You don't have to physically die to be convinced. But maybe those who have and came back, can help assure us that what we're becoming convinced of is the most real of anything we have been made to know. And that would be blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father, the truth is is that you never stop assuring us There is never a moment that you aren't blanketing us with that assurance. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And for all our good intentions and for everything that we have experienced, we know that we also will not be able to live up to this moment by moment and day by day. But help us to become more aware that when we do fail, when we are getting off track, 
that we have people in place who are accountability partners and that we ourselves can be accountable to you in a way that helps us to recognize that we need to repent, change course, come back, come back home. Help us to decrease our recovery time that every time we fall aside that we can snap back elastically, come back to you. As we move into this new year, Lord, help us all, our little community and each one of us individually, our families, our work groups, in whatever situation we find ourselves, just looking to leave everyone better than we found them, keeping that in the forefront of our minds, that every word that we say will be healing, every word that we say will bring relationships closer or we don't say them, every action or we don't do them. Help us to keep that in the forefront of everything we do while we do the things that we do so that we know that we know that we are convinced of what we're convinced of, that you are here, you are real, and you are deeper in our hearts than any breath, any thought, or anything else that we can experience. Thank you, Father, for this. Take us into 2020, knit us together, and never let us forget that we can only do all of this because you did it first in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand.